0: Benson, Arizona, blue warm wind through your hair My body flies the galaxies, my heart longs to be there Benson, Arizona, the same stars in the sky But they seem so much kinder when we watch them, you and I Welcome back to the a Movies Podcast. My name is Corey. Chris and Chris are with me.
1: Hello, hey, everyone.
0: Peek behind the curtain. This is our third episode we're recording in this uh, in this session. If we feel a little beleaguered, sound a little beleaguered, it's because we are. Oh.
2: Two and a half hours in.
0: <laughs> not nearly as long as the Movies Podcast, so we're going. Um, yeah. The Top Movies Podcast, but I guess. This is also a Movies Podcast. Anyway, um, we are here to talk about John Carpenter uh, with his first film, Gar- star dark star okay i googled something else like dark sun or something and i'm like there's nothing here this is not a John carpenter movie chris what are you doing today um under control i found out later that i was wrong um okay we're uh we're gonna do what we always do here and talk about like some of what we've been watching reading playing whatever we feel like talking about um and i'll start it off here um, so I got the Marvel Unlimited subscription, which gives you access to, like, Marvel's entire comics catalog, uh, going back a bajillion years, however long Marvel existed, and it gives you the newest issues something like, uh, six months after they're released, but uh, I don't care about that, I'm reading a lot of back, uh, back issues here. So, what I read in preparation for Spider-Verse is, uh, the 2014... Dan slot run of Spider-Verse, um, which includes Amazing Spider-Man, um, Spider-Verse, and uh, some other comics that I did not read. I did not read the entire Spider-Verse storyline, but I read a, the large swaths of it. Um, this is also the debut of Silk, uh, Korean-American sing Moon, who was bitten by the same spider as Peter Parker and then put into a bunker for 10 years to protect... Her and the world from the inheritors, which are the main antagonists of the storyline. Um, and the inheritors just eat the, uh, literally, like eat the powers of the the spider people. Um, and they want to end spider people uh, from the world, even though that appears to be their uh, food source. I don't quite understand that that thought of it, but um, it's it's a comic book. They want to they want to do bad things, and they people want to stop them from. From doing those things, but, um, I thought this was a very interesting comic, very, uh, bad introduction of Silk IMO, but, um, the, the swaths of, like, you get to meet Spider-Pig, who is, uh, much less annoying than in the, the Spider-Verse movie, um, here is also, like, Spider-UK, the punk spider, uh, ben parker is actually a spider-man in one of the universes which is very interesting uh like he winks to the museum with peter instead and then he got bit um and then there's this is also the introduction of gwen stacy as spider gwen uh spider woman in her universe because she's the only one but um i've been quite enjoying reading a lot of these marvel comics uh and really that uh, reading that whole storyline was an impetus of um, me wanting to get the background of Silk as a character, Looks like, I read some of those Silk comics several years ago, like, when they came out, and I liked those a lot, but I didn't really have the background. Um, the, the introduction was not that good, because she, because she and Peter were bitten by the same spider, they wrote it that, like, they are, uh, inherently, uh, animalistically attracted to each other, and cannot help but, uh, fuck each other if they see each other at all. Um, which is very weird and problematic, uh. But uh, the the ongoing Silk story of like she is looking for her parents because she is put into the bunker because the inheritor she was one of the key parts of the inheritors' uh, plan. Like she needed to be sacrificed with two other spider uh, spider people to be able to enact this whole plan. Um, that's why she was in the bunker. But uh, yeah, I I like comics. I like I like these Marvel comics, and I especially like Spider-Man comics. I think like there's a reason why. Marvel and Sony keep trying to make Spider-Man happen uh, because it's extremely popular and they're doing it wrong. Uh, they're doing it poorly in the MCU. They're, those Spider-Man movies are good. MCU movies, they are bad Spider-Man movies. Sam Raimi has made the only good Spider-Man movies.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I know a lot of people like deep into the comics community talk a lot of shit about Dan Slott, but I really like his Spider-Man comics. Uh, Spider-Island I thought was really, really good. Um, the weird thing where uh, Spider-Man got put into Doctor Octopus's body, and Doctor Octopus was now Spider-Man yes, for a couple of years. Yes, that was
0: the years. precursor to this storyline.
2: Yeah, so that that one's that was that wasn't. I didn't think it was bad, but it was a little, little, little odd. Um, but yeah, so I don't have anything against Dan Slott uh, as a Spider-Man writer, but I just I I love Spider-Man comics. Those comics, Spider-Man is so good.
0: Mm-hmm. I love me some Spider Mans. Um, if you do ever read anything on Marvel Unlimited, and you're reading like a storyline, it is absolute hell to read a storyline <laughs> because oh, they don't no. put it. They don't put it like they give you collections where you can read them all together, but they don't put it in any sort of uh, usable order. They do it like by title, and it's not at all by chronological order, which is the, makes the most sense because you want to read them in the release order. But I figured it out. I read King and Black as well. I won't get into that one but like it was absolutely hell to read that one to try to figure out where i think i could go next um but yeah that was uh that was some spider comics i'm reading spider gwen now too just because there there's another crossover with the spider Woman, which includes spider woman uh jessica drew silk and spider gwen um so i'm going back to read spider Gwen right now to, to read more silk but you yeah, know i like it uh chris what you got for us which chris? you chris
2: me chris um uh... So, uh, some of the other things that I watched over the past month in a couple, couple of weeks, uh, that I want to touch on. I watched, uh, it's a, a, a Polish film from the seventies by Wojciech Haas, uh, called The Hourglass Sanitarium. Uh, this was, I had been wanting to see this for years and years and, years and years. uh, the BFI had put it out on, on Blu-ray, like in the early 2010s. And I don't know why I never imported it. I like, I don't automatically import everything that I'm interested in watching. Like, I wait to see if it gets a, a US side release, and then I can choose, like, which one has the better bonus features, <laughs> stuff, stupid stuff like that. Um, and then it was re released again on Blu ray as part of the Martin Scorsese presents uh, Masterpieces of Polish Cinema. Uh, which was a a series of Polish films that Scorsese uh, had restored and did uh, theatrical screenings for. I don't know if they were in the U.S. or in Europe or where, but he paraded these restorations about town. Um, And this company put them out on Blu-ray in three really, really nice box sets. I didn't even hear about this at all until the second box set, was coming out and the first box set was already completely sold out out of print. It was a really limited run. Um, I went to order the second box set and I was at work and I came in like an hour after the pre-sale started and it was sold out already. And I never even heard about the third box set that they put out. So I completely, you know, missed these box sets of, of quote unquote Polish masterpieces. Um, uh, one, of, one of the movies that's on there is Ashes and Diamonds. can't remember the director's name because I'm really bad with with many foreign names. Uh, but Cr- Criterion recently put that out on Blu-ray. So these movies are starting to get released elsewhere. And uh, these Vochakas films are being released by on Blu-ray again by Yellow Veil Pictures, um, who they're a production company who have in the la- like last year or the year before Started releasing their own Blu-rays um, of films, but they're a they're what's called a partner label. Um, they're distributed by OCN Distribution, and all not all, but ninety percent of OCN Distribution labels are sold exclusively through the Vinegar Syndrome website. Um, a couple of a couple of the partner labels have decided to move on and are branching out. So like you can find their titles elsewhere now. Uh, but Yellow Veil Pictures is still one where you, you have to get them through the Vinegar Syndrome website. So they've they've released three um, in the last three months. The the other two is the Saragossa manuscript, which is also from Wojciech Hoss. And then coming at the end of this month is Wojciech Hoss's How to Be Loved. Uh, but because I ordered the partner label releases early enough and the month of june is partner labels only because vinegar syndrome takes a month off after their big sales that they have twice a year um when they sent me the monthly vinegar syndrome package with all the partner labels that i ordered i got this month's at the same time so now instead of just having the sarah grossa manuscript to watch i also have how to be loved to watch but whatever um so yeah the hourglass sanatorium is the first of the, these three Wojciechowski films uh, that Yellowvale Pictures is re releasing on Blu ray. And this was extremely my shit. It was exactly what I was hoping it would be when I first heard about it over a decade ago. Um, it is a surreal um, mind bender of a film that uh, it was censored by the Polish government because the Polish government in the 70s was really big on censorship really big on you can't talk bad about our government. Um, and so they, they censored this film and he said, fuck you and smuggled it out of the country and showed it at the Cannes film festival anyway. <laughs> and he was barred from making a movie for a decade because, because of, because of that. Um, but so the hourglass sanatorium, it's about this guy who goes to a, a sanatorium to visit his, his Elderly, dying, not doing super good father. And when he, before he gets there, I I believe his father has passed. So that's why he's going to visit him. And he gets there and his father is dead, but then he's talking to his father. um, Like his, it's not his ghost, but he's still dead. And then he wanders through the sanatorium and every room that he encounters is a different period in Polish history that he then uh, interacts with, but it's not historical moments of Polish history. They're like metaphors and allegories for different moments in Polish history. One is like he enters like a big party and it's a masquerade party. And it's uh, talking about the, the upper crust of the, the Polish class system. um, it's it's a very very weird film. Um, there's a, there's a couple of movies that follow this kind of. It's just a dude wandering, and in the course of his wanderings, through sur- surrealism, um, inex- you know, it's completely inexplicable. It makes no logical sense. It's just you're just meant to experience it because it is surrealism and it is allegory and metaphor, and it's, it's all about the point, not the logic of how did he get from A to B. None of that matters. Um, and then the two other films that, that follow similar patterns, and it's all about exploring the, the history, is Andrzej Zulowski's uh, Devil, which is another Polish film. Um, Devil pissed off uh, the Polish censors so much, he fled uh, Zulowski, that, that was what caused Zulawski to flee Poland and go to France to make his next film, The Most Important Thing, Love. And then The Most Important Thing, Love, was so successful, uh, the Polish government said, yeah, you can make another film here. So he went back to Poland and was making Under the Silver Globe, which wasn't even completed. And it pissed off the government so much they ordered the, fi- the film destroyed, canceled production. Um, and then he fled again uh, to make Possession um, in Germany, and then he made the rest of his movies in France. But thankfully, Under the Globe, what was made had survived, so we, we get to see that, and that's part of the, the Polish trilogy uh, that's coming out to Blu-ray in the UK um, this month or next month. It's um,
1: July, end of July. They, it was July. supposed to be May, but they delayed it.
2: Yeah, that's gonna be awesome. I've seen all three of those movies. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. and the third one is Takashi Miike's Izo, uh, which is a Japanese film. Izo was actually the first film of this style that I had seen. And I had I was my mind exploded. I was like, I've never seen anything like that. Um and so it's really neat seeing other movies that are similar uh in approach and execution, and they all work for me. Um they work extremely well. They're very uh, the Hourglass Sanatorium, which is what I'm actually talking about, is very thought provoking. It's very interesting. It's very engaging visually, um, because it's it's all about that surrealism. So like it's visually sumptuous and strange, and you're just like, what the fuck am I watching? But you can't stop watching. It's fantastic, um, absolutely fantastic. So yeah, the Hourglass Sanatorium. Definitely high, high, high on a recommendation list uh, when Vinegar Syndrome opens up their... No, their website's still open for partner labels only this month. So you can go to their website and pick it up up, um, right now. You don't have to wait for Vinegar Syndrome to put their titles back on the website because the partner labels are still up. So yeah, cannot recommend Hourglass Sanatorium enough. Um, and the other movie I want to talk about is uh, it was released on Blu-ray by Mondo Macabro. Um, it was part of their, their October Halloween pre-order event that getting those discs made ba- basically put the company like they almost crumbled under it because it, so many problems happened. Uh, everybody who pre-ordered for the Halloween pre-order just finally got their discs in last month in May. Um, so it was it was it was nasty um but dr dr caligari is the one i'm talking about and this was a five star what an incredible movie experience and it is certifiably the most insane movie i have ever seen and i'm pretty sure the most insane movie ever made um in our discord server i posted the trailer. But if you watch the trailer, you're just like, this movie looks awful, Chris. Like it's this is a bad movie with bad acting. <laughs> but when you actually watch the film unfold, it transports you. It's something totally bizarre. So it's it's the only non-pornographic film from a director who his porno name is Rince Dream. Um it's the only non-pornographic film by him, but it's still an erotic film, uh, just without like sex and hardcore porn or anything. So it's actually plot driven. Um, but his whole deal is also surrealism and uh, strange behaviors. And so, like Dr. Caligari, it's about this woman who she uh, is basically a closeted nymphomaniac. She's just obsessed with sex and thinks about sex. And there's like a scene of her masturbating uh, early on in the film. And Apparently, she had gone into an asylum to get cured of this mania. Um, but now it's starting to come back. So her husband um, goes back to the asylum, who is run by Dr. Caligari. Uh, this is a technical sequel to the classic 1920s German expressionist horror film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, this Dr. Caligari is a descendant, like the great-great-granddaughter of the Dr. Caligari from that old German film. So it's, and and, and the opening scenes is all, like the opening credits is all scenes, uh, stills from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So it does tie it in. But anyway, um, so he goes back to Dr. Caligari and readmits his wife. And the plot of it is Dr. Caligari is continuing her great-great-grandfather's traditions of doing illegal experiments on patients. Um, and her whole thing is like she's taking the essence out of people and planting them into other people. Um, and but that's not like the plot is not what matters here. Like this movie is so strange. When the the husband goes to the asylum and is talking to Dr. Caligari about his wife regressing from her treatment. Uh, Dr. Caligari, she um, she has this really awesome Cleopatra black wig and is always smoking a cigarette and her movements they're not natural movements this these are not human beings functioning in real manners uh like everything she does it's from pose to pose and they're like they're like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Hirohi, Hirohiko Araki he took actual um poses from fashion magazines and that's how he drew the JoJo's manga like all these insane poses that you see in the JoJo's anime and manga are because they're literally they're basically traced um, from fashion magazines, and so that's how the people in this movie move. They they just go from like fashion model pose to pose um, with with no rhyme or reason. It's very stilted and robotic, and so she's sitting there talking to him in these short perfun- perfunctory sentences. Doing pose to pose. And then there's a patient, uh, it's not a patient, it's like her secretary just randomly, like, will like pop her head into the frame and be like, chinchilla, chinchilla, and pop her head back out of frame. Um, and the whole movie is like this. Uh, there's these two doctors that work in the asylum that think that to- Dr. Caligari is going too far. So they want to stop. Uh, Stop her experiments, and like they're walking, and like there's a scene where they talk to uh, their father because these two doctors are married, and they're talking to the wife's father, and they're smoking cigarettes, and they're like really robotic, stiff, you know, super quick puffs, and then dramatic exhales. And um they say certain words in unison. so they'll be like, one person will be talking, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll whip their heads at each other and then say the same word together, and then whip their heads back straight forward. And it is it is certifiably insane. Um, like I said, you watch the trailer and you're like, "No, this is just a bad movie." But it's not. Like it's so intentional and it's so crafted perfectly that when you're watching it happen, it makes sense and 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 the strangeness and the very weird nature of it becomes part of the film and you jibe with it. Like if you look up letterboxed reviews, uh most of the people that watched it like on my friends list, it's all four stars and above, mostly four and a half stars. Um like people really respond to this movie cuz it's a good ass movie, but you can't as soon as you start cutting bits and pieces out of it to make a trailer Like, yeah, no, this is a low-budget film that was made for $5 in someone's fucking garage. This is awful. But it works when you're actually watching it. Um, It's amazing. It was like the most enjoyable 80 minutes I've had all month so far. Um, (laughs) It's so good, and it's so bonkers. Um, I I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Mondo Macabro... I I don't think that, so the limited edition that was part of the October pre-sale, it was completely sold out during that pre-sale. I don't think their standard edition has come out yet. It either just came out, um, and you can order it from their website, mondomacabro.bigcartel.com. It's not even a real website, it's a big cartel storefront. Um, And it'll be released to like Amazon and whatever in like two months, that's how they operate. Um, so, but yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It's for cinematic adventurers only. If you, I only watch casual, you know, mainstream movies, foreign or domestic, this, you will be, you'll be slapped silly with this movie and you might not like it. But if you're like looking for interesting expression in how cinema can be done, um, and you're okay with um, eroticism. and it's, it's, The whole movie's about sex. There's no sex in it. Um, so it's not like you're watching a softcore porn or anything. So don't worry about that. Uh, but it, the whole thing, it revolves around sex. Um, and none of that bothers you. Like, absolutely, watch this movie. One of a kind. Amazing. So good. And before I turn it over to the other Chris, I'm just going to say I finally watched Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass. <mwah> Mike Flanagan continues to be the best
0: uh Gallagheri not gonna be confused with his cabinet uh Chris what you got
1: um I'll talk about a um another a, well I'm not sure what order we're releasing these in but uh a Czech New Wave film um listen to our podcast on Barking Dogs Never Bite," so some background on what brought me into watching Czech New Wave but I'm gonna talk briefly about Daisies which is a wild wild fucking movie from the 60s 1966 to be exact um So a little bit of background about Daisies is it is a very, I think, very blunt uh, feminist film um, directed by Vera uh, Chitilova. Um, Again, as part of the Czech New Wave, this is um, heavily, heavily uh, laden with commentary on uh, the patriarchy, on the... Just the kind of the omnipresence of government, authoritarianism, government censorship, um, and it apparently did receive um, condemnation from the government. It was made, it was released, obviously, because we can see it. Um, but you know, as a, as, a, as a plot, it is focused on two Maries. That's their name, Marie One and Marie Two. After all, um, they're just women, um, so they're just you know the commentary is very overt there. Um, they're sitting around in bathing suits they are moving around and they sound like dolls, I mean this is all just super overt stuff Um, but it manages to take this overt commentary and just do some really incredibly bizarre ridiculous things with it, there's a scene where the Marie's are in a nightclub um, and they've made the conscious decision that the world is spoiled so they're just going to spoil themselves just be anarchy, like we don't give a shit. We're just gonna do whatever the fuck we want. Um, nothing can hold us back. We're just gonna be crazy. Um, so they go to a, a nightclub. There's this 1920s style, like roaring 20s dancing couple doing a performance. Um, but the Maries get so drunk that they d- basically steal all the attention for themselves. It's it's crazy. There's scenes where basically everything they eat, the food is is phallic shaped. Um they're also constantly like getting free food from from men and then setting them off on a train um which comes to a head when one guy keeps getting off the train so the Marines are like fuck it we're just going to get on the train <laughs> instead and leave him behind um it's quick it's le- less than 80 minutes if i recall um but the whole thing is just crazy it is experimental it is again laden with commentary um Really brilliant and no notes on this thing. It's, it's perfect.
2: It is perfect. Daisy's is amazing. Um, It's another, it's another surreal film. Um, I, I, one of the images that sticks with me is uh, there's a, a scene where like they're jumping on, on, on a, on a bed and it's still live action, but their body parts are cut out of the frame and pasted back onto a naked frame As like a collage and so like just their heads are bobbing around and then like their arms are disembodied and floating around like it's a wild ass movie that movie is so good
1: yeah and um again like each it's 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 it's, each sequence is just in some ways it's it's that all commentary all bizarre there's so much surrealism there's pieces where um they uh what's the this is with there's this bit of them like with the scissors um if i'm trying to exactly recall what it was but they were kind of cutting each other up um or cutting yeah they cut each other apart with scissors um is that the scene you were talking about with the bed? yeah I yeah, think so. yeah yeah um and there there's Again, like the funniest part is just the way that these like them like pushing these men on the train after they the men treat them to to food. Like they get they get to eat, they're like thanks, thanks for the food. Here's the train. Go back. Go 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 Uh it's very funny. Um and it, you know, the Maries again, they're very like we're just going to spoil ourselves cuz society's awful. Miraculously this thing got made. It got some it got released in Czechoslovakia. I think after release it got banned. Um so you know the thing was was committed to film. Everybody's able to see it now. It's in the Criterion Collection and it is on the Criterion Channel. Um,
2: it was originally put out on DVD as part of an Eclipse set, and we know how most people don't buy Eclipse sets, which they they don't even make them anymore. Um, so it it went under the radar for a while as just part of this Czech new wave Eclipse uh, DVD set. I caught it when uh, they put it on the channel uh, three or four years ago, and it just got put on Blu-ray um, as part of the official collection a month or two ago. So, yeah, definitely it's, it, we're right on the cusp for rediscovery um, and widespread appreciation of this thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm not going to accept that name. Daisy's Criterion Channel, <laughs> Ari Asker's Classic Picks. Um, Chris, lead us in to John Carpenter.
2: Okay, so uh, yeah, so when we first started uh, doing the director series, when we we did Akira Kurosawa, you know, because even though Corey had only seen Ikaru, he was like, Akira Kurosawa, my favorite director of all time. time." And I was (laughs) like, well, then, you know, obviously when I do mine, I'm going to do John Carpenter, who is my favorite director of all time. And when it, we, you know, three years later, when we finally finished the Kurosawa series, um, I don't remember. Like, I, I was just chatting with Corey and we were all set to do John Carpenter. I gave Corey all of my John Carpenter DVDs because um, thanks to Scream Factory mostly, all of his films had been re released on Blu ray with newer, nicer editions. Um, so I had all these DVDs and older Blu-rays lying around. I just gave them to Corey. I was like, we're all set, buddy. We're going to do the John Carpenter. And then it was like two weeks before we were set to record the first episode or something, and I don't know what happened, but it must have been all my Twin Peaks talk. Uh, Corey was just like, yeah, so you're going to talk about David Lynch. And I was like, man, I could, I would really love to do that. And I just went with it. And so that's how we did the David Lynch series. Um, And I,
0: I think we were all there talking about the last Kurosawa that we had gone and being like, all right, what will you next?
2: Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was very bizarre. And it was like in this last minute, just, well, I guess I'm not going to do John Carpenter. We're just gonna, I'm just going to do David Lynch. And that's going to be amazing because his movies are so wild and I love surrealism and I love David Lynch. And then D- David Lynch ended and we started doing Melville Uh, for Chris and it was, and it started spiraling into, so what are we going to talk about next? Um, And I'm like, well, that's in like four years. Um, But I, you know, I, I have so many movies that I love and I want to share with everybody. So I was like, maybe I should do Andre Zulofsky. And then I, this documentary on French horror filmmaker, Jean Roland just came out earlier this year. I was like, nah, uh, let's do Jean Verlan. You know, nobody's going to fucking watch his old French horror movies. Like that'll be a great experience. Cause I really like the idea of sharing movies with people, getting them to experience things that, uh, they, they would not have normally. um, but then Dana was like, "No, Chris, you're supposed to do John Carpenter. I'm not watching any of his movies because we're supposed to do it on the podcast." And then we were like, "Where we came up with the idea of like, okay, well, let's just do three episodes a month so that we're doing a director concurrently because otherwise it'd be years and years out because we've been doing the these director series for five years and we've gone through Kurosawa and Lynch." Um, so, sorry, Chris, that we stole your your spotlight of Melville and Melville only. Um, but it just seemed like the better the better thing to do. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just do John Carpenter. Get it taken care of. Um, I made all these promises. I got Corey all these DVDs. Dana's not refusing to watch his movies. Um, and but I'm like, you know, you everybody Halloween loves. Now.
0: Huh? You watched Halloween though. I think.
2: Yeah, she she did watch Halloween um because she wanted to watch the the, the 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 new trilogy for when halloween ends came out last year um and so it was like you know everybody loves john carpenter it doesn't feel like i'm really sharing anything new with people so that was where my hesitancy was coming from i said, like, no i want to expose people to weird obscure things um but fuck it like i just i still love john carpenter so here we go um I don't have, if you've listened to Barking Dogs Never Bite, I do not have this crazy life story uh, like Corey had prepared for Bong Jun ho um, So we'll really just kind of get into the meat of it. Um, John Carpenter, he went to USC in California, and he originally started, his uh, major was in music. He wanted to be a musician. Like that's his number one passion. Uh, But then kind of like David Lynch, he stumbled into uh, filmmaking and was like, you know, this is, this is amazing.
1: (laughs) I just Uh, love accidentally like, oh, I make (laughs) movies. Oh, I'm one of the best ever do it. Well,
2: yeah, you know, this
0: camera thing. I'm going (laughs) to
2: like, it's incredible how that happens. Um, He made a couple of student films um which i've never seen they recently got rediscovered from the usc vaults and were shown at like moma or something like eight or nine years ago and i was waiting for them to get like released on on disc or somewhere like officially because they were discovered restored and theatrically screened but they they've never popped up anywhere uh it, the first one's called like Captain Voyeur, and the other one is like the Resurrection of something or other. I can't remember the full title, um, but yeah. So I'm I'm still waiting to see his early short film uh, student films. Um, they, they're out there. They're restored. They've been screened. I just don't know why we're not getting them as like a bonus feature on something. I just I don't I don't whatever. Um, anyway, so Dark Star started as um, his student thesis film. And what's, what's really interesting about Dark Star is it's uh, co-written and, and co-stars um, one of John Carpenter's buddies from, from college, um, a man by the name of Dan O'Bannon, which if you're deep into movie lore like me, that name might ring a bell. That's because Dan O'Bannon is the screenwriter behind Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien, um, the most popular sci-fi horror franchise of all time. Everybody loves Ridley Scott's Alien. It's rightly proclaimed one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Uh, Yeah, it was written by Dan O'Bannon. He wrote a couple other movies. Let's see, I have his Wikipedia up here. Um, He wrote a movie called Dead and Buried, which he claims he actually didn't write. Uh, But Dead and Buried is awesome. Um, And then he made his directorial debut in 1985 with The Return of the Living Dead, which is a whole interesting story that I would love to talk about one day, but I won't. Um, He directed and wrote Return of the Living Dead, one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Uh, Absolutely seek that one out. Uh, He wrote Life Force and Invaders from Mars for Tobey Hooper when Tobey Hooper was making films for Canon in the mid-'80s. He wrote Total Recall, starring uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then his second directorial film and his last directorial film was a HP Lovecraft movie called The Resurrected." Um, so like he didn't have like the best received career, but he had alien. um and alien was enough to to get anybody through for the rest of their life. Um, and so, Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter made a student film together called Dark Star. It was about forty-five minutes long, um, and a producer somewhere was like, "Guys, this short film that you made for school is fucking amazing. Um, here's six thousand extra dollars because they made it off of like a thousand bucks. Here's an extra six grand." go make 40 more minutes of this and we'll release it as uh, an actual movie. So the short film was made in 1971-ish. And by the time they they got the $6,000, shot the extra 40 minutes, and released it as a feature film, it was 1975, I think, or 74? 1974. So three years later. And there's a great quote uh, from Dan O'Bannon who said about Dark Star that they went from making the most impressive student film ever made to the least impressive studio-produced film ever made, Um, which perfectly sums up Dark Star. Um, So the film, it's a sci-fi comedy. Um, There's even on the Blu-ray, I don't know, how did you guys watch Dark Star?
0: It was on Tubi, so I watched it there with ads.
1: Yeah, with ads, Tubi, I believe, or Roku Channel or something. Yeah, yeah very, okay. you know, lazy, click a button on the remote, call it a day.
2: Okay. Uh, did it have the, the written introduction from Dan O'Bannon at the beginning?
0: I don't think so.
2: Okay. So at, um, at, on the Blu-ray... Uh, that VCI Entertainment put out over a decade ago, which is still readily available. This Dark Star is one that Scream Factory has not been able to get their hands on, but this like ten year plus uh, VCI Blu-ray is still available. Um, it's not very expensive. Um, but at the beginning of the movie, there's this whole written introduction that you know scrolls from bottom to top from Dan O'Bannon, where he's like, "Okay, so I want to let y'all know before you watch this movie." this is a comedy. It was supposed to be a comedy. Apparently in 1974, people didn't understand that, so they hated it. But if you understand that it's a comedy, you might like it. So please go in with uh, that knowledge of forethought, uh, which I think is hilarious, because when you watch the film, um, it's a very, very funny movie, but it's also not a funny movie at the same time. I'll elaborate later. So it's, it's a, it's a comedy that is basically taking the piss out of, uh, 2001, a space odyssey. It's about this spacecraft that is way out deep, deep, deep space. Um, and it's a crew of five people. One of them had was, had died right before the film starts. He was in his chair and his chair exploded. Uh, so they cryogenically froze his dead body and put it in the hull of the ship. And this mission, they've been on it for 20 years, but um, be, due to space-time relativity, they've only aged four years um, in the process. And their whole mission is to go out and find um, star systems to, to colonize for for humanity to move move to and escape the the poisoned earth that we all know corporations have destroyed but when you discover these other star systems there are unstable stars in those star systems that could pose a threat so say you know this random star system has a planet that is suitable for human colonization we move there, and in 200 to 300 years, that planet gets destroyed because of an unstable star. So they're basically going around clearing the path and blowing up um, these random-ass planets that are deemed unstable so that when humanity goes and colonizes these other planets, um, they don't have to worry about the planet being destroyed by an unstable star in a couple hundred or thousand years. It's, they're, they're playing the long game here. Um, so it starts with them finding one of these unstable planets, and they drop a bomb and blow it up. But what's really interesting is the the computer system, it's very much taking from HAL from two thousand and one. It's a fully artificial intelligence, um, full thinking. You can have conversations with the computer. Um, and it goes so far as to have these personalities imprinted on uh the individual bombs themselves like the bombs are numbered so they have these independent personalities and like they're talking to bomb number 19 at the beginning and he's like yep i understand the mission i'm going to go blow this bitch up like it's very humorous but you don't laugh while you're watching it um and what so what happens after they they bomb this planet they find another planet and the uh de facto leader is uh Lieutenant Doolittle, who was he was second in command after the captain had was was killed by his chair. Um and they're like, let's let's do these things and Doolittle's like, no, I want to go blow shit up. Like that's the only thing he cares about is just blowing shit up. Uh because he's American. That's what we do. Uh, I should also note that John Carpenter is a big leftist, just like Bong Jun ho. And so throughout his career, throughout his films, we're going to find a lot of leftist politics and negative critique of conservative politics and the American mindset of the mainstream. He was a very subversive director uh, throughout his entire career. Um, and, And we see that all the way back with this student film come feature debut. And... They find another planet that is, you know, forever parsecs away. So they go into warp drive. And it's a it's kind of amusing cuz like they go into like a hyperstasis, which is just like this really crude like uh, special effect where they paint them red and so like the the actors just like look up and hold and then the the film frame freezes. Uh, they use a special effect to color everybody red, and that's them in stasis while they're in warp drive. And while they're going through warp drive, um, the computer, the sentient computer, is like, uh-oh, guys, we, we got a, a, an electrical storm coming up, and it's a, a, a asteroid belt that's held together with an electrical field. And it's all very low budget. It was a student film, and this is all stuff from the original student film. So it's all very crude, low-budget special effects, but it's, it's charming. Um, they go through this asteroid belt, and the electrical storm fucks with their computers, and bomb number 20 deploys from the bomb, the bomb area. And there's a whole scene where the computer and the bomb are arguing back and forth about the bombs like no I was I was given the order and the computer's like no you weren't given the order that was a false order get back in the bay de-arm yourself get get back in here and it's it's very funny um, and that plays a role later in the film they 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 get out of the the electrical storm they get out of warp drive um and the the characters a lot of the film is the characters kind of talking to each other while they're on their final approach to the unstable planet that they want to blow up. Um, And there's a whole sequence where uh, Sergeant Pinback, who is played by Dan O'Bannon, goes to feed this, this alien that he adopted on one of their missions. They found a tomato alien and he, felt bad for it it's mentioned in like very briefly like it's so it's mentioned so briefly that you don't even really connect the dots that that he actually took the alien in and it's on the on the ship with them un- until you meet the alien and then by then you probably forgot about the throwaway statement earlier uh but he goes to feed uh this this tomato alien And the tomato alien gets out. And it's this elongated sequence. It's like 20 minutes long. Um, This was all part of the new footage that they shot. Where Pinback is trying to capture the tomato alien. And get him back into the hold where he was being kept. And the tomato alien leads him into an elevator shaft. Where uh, due to the electrical storm malfunction. The elevator is going up and down and it's this very perilous thing. And he tries to, to climb inside the elevator, but gets stuck because the hatch that he climbed into is too small. Um So he has to blow the, the bigger hatch, which is around the smaller hatch. So there's like an explosion and he's part of that. Like it's, it's all very wacky and wild. Uh, but what's really hilarious is that whole segment with pinback Chasing the Tomato Alien—that's literally draft the first draft of Alien. Dan O'Bannon took that 20-minute segment and was like, "This is awesome!" And he he rewrote the script to be a horror film, and he added all this other stuff. And so, when you're watching the Tomato Alien bit in Dark Star, you're literally watching draft one of Ridley Scott's Alien. How fucking cool is that? Like, that's awesome um and so he was like i think this would work better as a scary horror film as opposed to a comedy let me turn this into something very scary and harrowing and we got we got a classic five years later um that's just really awesome um and then they get to the planet and they're like okay let's let's do this and so they try to to tell the bomb to uh deploy and the bomb's like no you are a false order because the bomb has been brainwashed by the computer from earlier when he accidentally was being deployed now he doesn't want to intentionally be deployed um like two of the characters they get sucked out of an air hatch the ship explodes a character uses a piece of the debris to surf across the galaxy um it's super fucking bizarre. Um, it's it's a really wild movie. But what's interesting about this is there's a lot of things, just like when we talked about Bong Joon-ho's first film, that this is very much, I can see John Carpenter learning how to do this here, learning how to do that there. The music was composed by John Carpenter himself because John Carpenter was a music major. His passion was music. And that would go throughout his career. John Carpenter did the score for most of his movies, not all of them. Um and those have gone on to be among the most iconic and revered musical scores in film history. Um now in his retired age, you know, he's he's put out four just albums. Um like this this 80-year-old, 70-year-old, 80-year-old dude, it's like, well, I'm just going to put out music now and he's put out four albums. Uh, three of which are all original music. They're all incredible. Um, so like here we get the first taste of John Carpenter doing a score. Uh, we see him learning how to frame and build tension. Like there's a lot of scenes, especially with the elevator sequence during the uh, tomato alien bit that actually has a good use of tension. Um, but it's a comedy, which is something that John Carpenter never, never returned to. He never, he never went back to do just a comedy film. And so you feel that this material isn't quite Carpenter's forte. And so you're disjointed from that because the film itself actually isn't really that funny. Um, but the the filmmaking, the cinematography, the music, the the various elements, you can see no something really special is happening here. You can tell that John Carpenter is a special director. You could tell that Dan O'Bannon was a very special writer. Uh, there's something really special going on here. And if you like outside, just like with Barking Dogs Never Bite outside of the act of watching the film, if you think about the film, like if you were to read this as a script, it's one of the funniest scripts you'll ever read. This movie is hilarious, but it's just not directed um, satisfactorily as a comedy, so the comedy doesn't really land. It doesn't like actually make you laugh. Um, it makes me laugh in a couple of spots. But for the most part, it doesn't make you laugh. But when you read the script or you think about the actual lines that are spoken and the situations that are under, it's a very, very, very funny movie. Um, It's just not directed very well as a comedy because that wasn't what John Carpenter was good at. Uh, John Carpenter grew up as a fan of Westerns. John Ford is like his favorite director of all time. Um, and that'll be brought up more next month when we talk about Assault on Precinct 13. Um, but yeah, John Carpenter was a Western guy. Um, doing a comedy just wasn't what his interests were in, and you can see that in the execution of this film. It's well-made, it's it's interestingly shot, it's very, very funny, but it doesn't play. Um, I give this one three and a half stars because I do like it quite a bit. The the ending with the dude surfing on the debris, um, and the other dude becoming one with a meteorolo- meteorol- meteorological event that travels the whole universe. Like all of that is super amazing. Um, our friend and yours, Vinnie, have uh, I want to say nine years ago uh, for All Geeks Considered podcast. They actually covered this movie. And I remember I sent in the question, you know, is it the best ending ever or the all caps best movie ever? Um, Neither Vinny or Diego liked this at all. They were like, this movie's awful. Um, And I was very offended listening to that podcast because I was like, it is not awful. Excuse you. Um, (laughs) And they didn't like the ending either, um, which is fine. Like it's not everybody's cup of tea. It's a very strange movie. It's not a very successful movie, but it is a a vastly interesting debut film for both Dan O'Bannon's career and John Carpenter's career. Um, And I think more so than Barking Dogs Never Bite, I think viewers interested in Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter uh, will get more out of watching Dark Star Than maybe watching uh, Barking Dogs Never Bite for Bong Joon Ho uh, because this is such a weird movie. Uh, You can tell where scenes are padded out from the extra footage they had to shoot. You can tell what was fine tuned. Um, Dan O'Bannon's quote that I mentioned at the beginning of all this tirade you know, they went from the most impressive student film of all time, fat, to the least impressive. (laughs) <laughs> studio production of all time also fact um, it's, a, it's a very interesting and strange beast uh, Dark Star is Dark Star's pretty cool though I like it but I would put it aside from his, John Carpenter's actual bad movies that he made very late in his career um, Dark Star is pretty low on the list of uh, priorities and uh, rankings for John Carpenter sorry Go ahead.
1: Um, You said a lot of how I feel about the movie. Um, Like there are moments that elevator shaft scene is just like, oh yeah, this guy's good.
0: Extremely funny.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and there's, there's just, and then again, like the whole, this is the blueprint for alien. Like I called on that pretty early I was like what the fuck this is alien and then I looked it up and I was like oh Dan O'Bannon do oh, Dan O'Bannon wrote alien there we go this is alien yeah. uh, <laughs> um, and I mean there was just there's a lot I think from just an appreciation of watching an, a director develop before your eyes that this movie has that a lot don't um, we talk about it a bit with Bong Joon-ho but um, in terms of like you know, how directors are allowed to develop and, and learn on the f- learn, and, and you know, not everybody's going to have their, their massive work to start their career. Um, most won't. Um, like this is just a really great example of, yeah, just go wild, figure stuff out. I have faith in you. Um, you're going to make great movies, um, kind of attitude, um, and which is very true. And, um, I, I, it is just so silly. The ending is, is hilarious and just like ridiculous. And there's, there's a lot of just absurd silliness. It's, but as you said, I mean, I think the stuff that really stands out is that the, anything that where there's supposed to be high wire like tension or, you know, little claustrophobic, those shots leading to the computer in like that darkened hallway. It's just like, good Lord, this is visually so good. Um, and I will touch on the effects. like I would expect n- significantly worse visual effects than what we got with this movie, given the background as a student film and basically no budget for a studio film. Mm-hmm. Like, certainly not good effects. um certainly, like based on what was happening with new Hollywood and like I mean, we're a couple years away from Star Wars, just like blowing the doors down on visual effects in movies. um But, like, I I mean, there's so much B-movie sci-fi that got so much more money in the early 70s and late 60s. It just looks significantly worse than this. But, also, this movie does look like shit.
0: (laughs) 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 I thought they were incredible effects. Very uh, early Doctor Who-esque, if you've ever watched, like, the 60s Doctor Who
2: yeah, I have a very I have a very I, I have a very big affinity towards uh really crummy special effects. Like if you had money and you make bad special effects, I don't like it.
1: Yeah. If agreed. you had
2: no yeah. if you had no money and you make bad special effects, I fucking love it. I think it's amazing yeah, it's, what it's endearing. You do, yeah, because it, it's it's endearing, it's charming, but also it's like it's the most weird shit ever. Like there's a movie that I adore called uh blood beat uh that was made for like 50 bucks in wisconsin and it has some of the worst special effects that you'll ever possibly see but it was made for like 50 bucks and the fact that it's like it's always neon green it's always um bright neon colors with outlines and or, or they just like cover a person with a color like they do in dark star it's always the same type of really shitty cheap effect and i the love it. Cheapest
0: paint at the hardware store and they're like okay how can we yeah. make this work
2: <laughs> I, lo- I love it i think it's so i love i love it i would watch these movies with these bad special effects that were made for 50 bucks all day long, and I will praise the special effects and be like, "Dude, that was really cool." Um, but you have a hundred million dollars, and you make The Hobbit two with the water barrel <laughs> chase scene, and it looks like garbage. And I'm going to be for the gold, this. or the what? The gold? Yes, the gold during the hallucination scene in the third Hobbit movie. Yeah. Fuck out of town with that! This nonsense. is
0: this is Gogo thirteen nine a Hobbit movie. <laughs>
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, um,
1: I I loved the uh they basically were like, well, we need an alien, so go pick me up a beach ball, um we'll <laughs> spray paint it to look like a tomato and put feet on it and call it a day. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and giving some Rango effects uh or oh, sound yeah. effects. Sounding literally it. all of the sound effects in this, I am 100% convinced were done by a human. Perhaps John Carpenter himself. <laughs> 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 yes uh amazing um i did like this movie though i thought it was funny <laughs> in a in a you know um low budget genre movie kind of way uh like sidebar i don't know why we call them genre movies like everything is a genre i mean i know what you mean but like i don't know why you get it that way um
2: It it all comes from it's all it's all this bullshit prestige. If you're not a drama film, you're not a real movie, so therefore you're a genre movie. And Mm -hmm. we still see that, like with the Academy Awards and stuff. It's it's all about dramas and character studies. Those are the ones that are considered actually good, and genre is always pushed to the side.
0: We we get the token um, best picture nomination for some sort of genre movie because there's ten of them now. But uh, whatever. Um, anyway, um, the this, like, 60s, 70s, 80s era is, like, rife of great and horrible genre movies where we just kind of see people experimenting and, uh, get their feet wet, some of them only get their feet wet, some of them diving into the deep end, like John Carpenter, uh, and we, I'm, I'm very appreciative of this, uh, this era, and it's not just, um, not just live-action western movies too uh because in the in the 80s they we know uh, being anime fans we got like the bubble of uh <laughs> great or shitty OVs too where it's yeah. like here's here's a couple hundred thousand dollars do whatever you want make uh make three episodes of something um and some of those are really good some of those were like dallas i guess but <laughs> um
2: I... the 70s i think the 70s is my favorite uh decade for film because we finally got rid of the Hayes code mm. um everybody was just throwing money around um it, you know and it wasn't a lot of money they're like here's 10 grand go make a movie and so they did what they could there are so many incredibly low budget um films that were made in the 70s that there's gems out there bubby like there are some really great movies that people will be like, "No, that movie's awful." It's like, no, put in the get in the right mindset. Um, it was made for like ten dollars. Uh, <laughs> it's a good movie. Um, yeah. yeah, I love the seventies. Oh. Yeah,
0: and this one's fun. Um, this one, I mean, it doesn't get into like some of the more interesting sci-fi aspects, like. I mean not even Gunbusker does it, but Gunbusker goes a little bit more into it of like what is the difference between um light years and time where you communication is barely existing. Uh, and what does that do to a person besides like they've been out there for twenty years but they've only aged three years. Um I yeah, but besides that, it's just like they it feels like it's just a space adventure where they where they're going out and Bad things happen, and have to figure out what to do with the bad things. Like the entire <laughs> scene with the bomb, when um yeah, he, who was it, uh, trying to convince the bomb that like he's having an existential crisis, do not explode because <laughs> we'll all die. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I thought those those types of scenes were um top end comedy for John Cawminger. Sad thing, doesn't didn't do any more comedy. I mean, I'm sure there's like funny scenes in future movies, but uh the dude knows now how to how to write a line and write a, a scene that's just peak comedy. Yeah.
2: The, the bomb and the computer, like that that that's those are like all timers. That shit is so funny.
0: How do you know they're real? <laughs>
2: you're right. I don't know that they're real.
0: But I don't know that you're real by the same logic. No Oh, man. Um, but yeah, it's good. It's good. I think, I mean, I don't see as much um, uh, influence from the later film. I've only seen The Thing of John Carpenter besides us. Like, but I don't see as much. Like, I definitely see, like, where he's coming from with the, from this to The Thing. But um, I didn't make the connection to Alien at all. It's been a while since I've seen Alien, though.
1: I think it's more than just an academic watch. I mentioned it in my Letterbox review, but it's more than just watch this because Blueprint of Alien, John Carpenter's first film. Like, there's enough in here that I think you know it's worth a watch because it's pretty, really silly. Like, yeah, yeah.
2: But it's not. It's not a masterpiece. It's not a no. hidden gem. Like, go in with 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 proper expectations. I have the right
1: expectations. Yeah, this was apparently, and and I can. See why um like a bit of a you know home video cult classic a lot of what's called what are classified as B movies became that um during the home video boom um these like really low budget like this thing is just weird like they're not gonna put this out put something out like this in theaters these days, and that was like the reaction in the eighties um so they're especially not gonna put something out like this. Anywhere these days, um, they'll they'll spend a hundred million dollars and it'll look like shit instead.
0: Yeah, yeah. This reminds me, at least in like the vibes of, uh, you get uh, an inkling of a director of Eraserhead, where that was very. I mean, I wouldn't call this experimental exactly. Maybe it was for the time, but um, and now it feels uh, standard sci-fi uh, trappings, kind of, but. Um, it does give like the vibes of John Carpenter very strongly as Eraserhead gave very strong vibes of David Lynch. Uh,
2: one, one, one re- weird side note that I think is funny. I still haven't been able to figure it out myself, uh, but in the written introduction from Dan O'Bannon that plays before the movie on the blu-ray, he mentions um, that one of the actors was tripping on LSD while they were shooting. And he's like, try to figure out where it is. (laughs) And I still don't know which one it is because the, the movie is so weird and silly throughout that it could be any given time. It could be any of the actors. um, I I feel like it would have been a boiler, uh, the blonde haired guy with the the horrible porn mustache. Um, But like everybody is so silly and acts so strangely. Like, just tripping on LSD while making a movie. That's the vibe. That's, that's dark. Star. <laughs> that's the vibe. All
0: right. Um, anything else on the dark, star, dark star? Yeah. Okay. Before we uh, close this episode up
2: or, or any other thoughts like um, Corey for Bong Jun ho asked, you know, like what other people's experience with John Carpenter was previously or, um how they feel about john carpenter that they've seen or thoughts you know Corey has mentioned he's only seen the thing um previously
1: um yeah i have a bit of experience halloween i want to say the thing and i know big trouble in little china and they live
0: i've also seen scenes from from halloween when um i was in film class in college nice
2: so this is really like so you guys really have not dived into yeah. John Carpenter really at all before. That's just, I'm I'm excited. Like there's even there's even one John Carpenter film I haven't seen yet. Um, it's because it was released on Blu-ray around the time that we were going to uh, originally do the John Carpenter series, or we had started talking about it. And so I was like, well, I already have it on DVD, but I haven't watched it yet. So I bought the Blu-ray, and I was like, but I won't watch it because I'll do it for the podcast. And that was like five years ago now. Um, <laughs> and, that's, and that's his first TV movie, uh, Someone's Watching You or Someone's Watching Me, something like that. Um, so that's, that, there's one John Carpenter film that I have not previously seen. So that'll be really interesting. But this is... I'm excited. Like, I love... I love, I love this dude's movies so much. He's my favorite film director. Um, and it's not because I think his movies are better than other people's movies. I do not think he is a better technician as a director um, than, than some other people. That's why I have a lot of directors and films that I adore. But the bulk of this man's work and the consistency of this man's work um, have influenced me and impacted me uh, more than anything else. Like a good anecdote is when uh, Jordan Peele's Nope came out and there was some film bro on Twitter that was like, can we go ahead and proclaim uh, Jordan Peele the greatest horror filmmaker ever made because he made three bangers mm. in a row that has mm-hmm. never been done and Jordan Peele rep- himself replied I will not take this John Carpenter slander you know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. I appreciate the enthusiasm but I will not stand for this John Carpenter slander um, and then there's a lot of like trends that happen from time to time on TikTok and Twitter and stuff where they're like you know Name a director or a musician that had, you know, a better three run of movies than this person, you know, and like Jordan Peele, Robert Eggers, and Ari Aster have been succumbed to that a lot because they're, they're, they're all three movies in and they're all bangers.
0: Um, also and it's recency like, bias,
2: also recency bias. And it's like, guys, John Carpenter made one, two, three, four five six seven eight nine ten bangers in a fucking row um like back to back not including his tv movies just his theatrically released movies between assault on precinct 13 all the way up to they live nothing but goddamn stone cold masterpieces front to back um And there's no other director that's really had that kind of impact for me. That's why he's my favorite director. Like There's other movies I love more, but it's like, I love all of these movies. They're all so good. They're all fundamental in shaping and crafting why why I love movies, how I love movies. Um, And because he was mostly an independent, low-budget filmmaker, Throughout most of these years, I'll get to that. You know, as we periodically, you know, go through the ups and downs of his career, um, that is it, just it, it. It gave me the appreciation for movies with money and movies without money, movies that are off the beaten path, movies that are built for an audience, movies that are made solely for the director to make um all kinds of stuff it's just i love this dude's movies and i'm really excited to share that with everybody
0: looking forward to it um it goes out where can find everybody online
2: twitter
1: and letterboxd at antonius pious um repeated on every podcast but not really at all active on twitter um usually my Journeys there are when someone else sends me a link. Uh, but Letterboxd, remaining very active on. Things usually come in waves when I jot down all my thoughts on recent movies I've watched and and, up, and share them on there. Um, very good outlet for my movie thoughts. Um, nothing else to add there.
2: Yep. Uh, you can also find me on the Twitters and at Letterboxd, at Gokufi. Um, just like, just like Chris, I'm mostly active on Letterboxd. Um, if you want to chat movies with me, and you can invite me to your Discord server or whatever. Um, but I mostly just just watch movies and, and write about them on Letterboxd. I'd love to have comments, uh, discussions in the comments, uh, and all that other good stuff.
0: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TaikuMeko, T-A-I-I-K-U-M-E-N-C-O. Um, where I retweet sports context, uh And that's it. Uh, you can find me on Letterbox actually talking about movies at ImperiusK. Um, I don't write about every movie I watch, but I write about some of them. Uh, and then, um, what else can I say? You can find us on Twitter at Taiku Podcast. And you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com. And any podcast listening thingy of your choice. We um, are again
2: the Taiku movies podcast, but you knew that because you found us already.
0: Oh, yeah, I should say that too. But you gig for me, so I'm gonna have to. Uh, next to the eggs, we're gonna talk about movies until next month. Benson, Arizona, blue, warm wind through your hair. My body finds the galaxies, my heart longs to be there in Arizona, the same stars in the sky But they seem so much kinder when we watch them, you and I